0: Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Can you all hear me in the back, back there? Yes, sir. Okay, good, good. Okie dokie. There's a new handout this week. It's just this chart. The... uh the lesson we're going over today, I handed out last week, It's pages 11 and 12, and there are some back there if you don't have one. Okay? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you this day, we honor you and we bless you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ to worship you and to give you glory and praise, to honor you, to surrender and submit ourselves to your holy will as you have expressed to us in your word. We pray, O God, as we look into your word this morning, that you would help us to see you more clearly, help us to see Christ more clearly. I pray, O God, that you would help us to understand your kingdom uh, in a more clear and concise way. And, Father, we just thank you for the privilege that we have to freely proclaim your name and to study your word. I pray that all of your saints would be edified. O Lord, we um, just want to thank you uh, for the sweet fellowship that you give us with all of your dear family. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith and encourage us, and Lord, all the things that we face in this perverse generation, Lord, as pilgrims, as we uh, wait for your heavenly kingdom to come, we ask God that you would uh, walk with us, that you would be with us, that you would be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so I just kind of want to maybe talk to you just a bit about where we've been and where we're going so you kind of have a broader context of the things that we're looking at this morning. The The series that we're doing this year is is uh, called The Savior, the Cross, and the Gospel. And these first few weeks, uh, since starting on September 9th, We've been talking about Jesus' person, the person of Jesus Christ. If you will, we've been talking about Christology, the study of of Christ, the study of the person of Christ. And uh, with that, we're asking the question who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Who is he in reality? Who is he to you? Who is he to me? Um. Who did he claim to be? And in so doing, we began by talking about the fact that the record of Jesus' life is something that is really a biblical issue. Because it's in the Bible that we have the revelation of who Christ is. There are four gospel accounts in the Bible. Those are books that were written to describe the person and the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so it's primarily in the Bible that we learn about who Jesus is. And, of course, we all know this as born-again Christians. This Bible is this divine word of revelation from God to us, which records to us who Christ is and what he said. And, and not only that, but the very gospel of our salvation. Amen? And it ex- expresses and describes to us the fact that Jesus is our Savior. We've been saved. We are a community of people now who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen? All of those things flow out of biblical revelation. Therefore, as Christians, as we begin to grow in our understanding of who Christ is, as we begin to grow in our understanding of Christology, okay? It's important that we have a biblical view of who Christ is. Not a view that we have derived in our own understanding. But a view that we have revelation from God through his word by his spirit. Amen? And we're talking about the person of Jesus. We've been saying he's a very unique person. He's not like anybody else. He's very different. He comes from another place. He's not like us in the sense of his whole being, his whole person. And so it's important then for us to understand who God has revealed himself to be in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we've been doing. And, and uh, we, we began just talking about the importance of, of having a biblical view of Christ so that the thoughts that we think about Jesus are biblical thoughts. They're thoughts that God has given to us in his word. But furthermore, we began to, to, when we began to see what the Bible says about Jesus, we, we learned that he is the very focus of all of human history. That the, his passion on the cross, we said, was the most important event in all of human history. That as the plan of the ages has unfolded, that it is in fact that. It's a plan. It's something that God has intended from before the time when he created the world. And that all of that was focused on Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done. We, we sum that up by several biblical statements that say things like this. That all things were created by him, Christ, but also what? For him. That everything that's in the creation exists for Him. Therefore, you you can see with a statement like that, it's extremely important that we see ourselves in right relation to Christ. Because we were created, the Bible says, for Him. We exist for Him. And the Bible says we exist through Him. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But the point is, is that, when the Bible portrays Christ, it portrays him as the central figure of human history. That everything has its existence for him, for his purposes. And so then we, what we said was, because of this fact, when we read the Bible, Divine Revelation, we find that it's a narrative that's describing throughout history Christ. That he's on every page of the Bible. And that this narrative of the Bible is going through and describing for us God's plan for the ages, which all culminates in the cross and his work at Calvary. (coughs) Excuse me. So that when we read the biblical narrative, whether Old Testament or New Testament, all of those things are pointing to Christ. When we read the Old Testament, we I, as we pointed out through our lessons, we see all these examples and types and shadows all pointing to the reality of Christ. And if you don't understand that about the Bible, the Bible is a very mysterious book. <clears throat> I mean, we, we look back in the Bible and we see some horrific and horrendous things in the Old Testament. We look at all that and we wonder, what in the world why all this blood sacrifice? What are all these things about? Why is it that God requires blood? all of these kinds of things that are portrayed in the Old Testament. Well, they're all pointing to this central reality of who God is in Christ and what he has accomplished in Christ. So that Jesus is the center focus of the whole biblical narrative. Okay, That's imperative to understand as a Christian. If you don't understand that Jesus is the main figure, when you're reading in the first chapters of Genesis, you're, you're missing something. When, when you don't understand that Jesus is the main figure in the account of the Exodus and the account of the wanderings in, in, in the desert and of the account of the uh, conquest of Canaan, if you don't see Christ as a central figure, those things are very mysterious and hard to understand. You wonder, what's the purpose in all of this? Well, the purpose is Christ. The purpose is what God has intended in the plan of redemption. That's why all of those things are there. They're all there as, as a means by which God is unfolding his eternal plan. Okay, Which, I again, I'll say culminated in Christ when he came into the world, which is what we're going to talk about today, when he came into the world and accomplished his work on Calvary. That's where it all culminated. That is the focus of human history. And, and so when we think about who Jesus is, when we start to get our Christology down in our mind as Christians, who is Christ? When we think about our world, when we think about our life, when we think about the trials we're facing, as we walk through our life, who is this Jesus? And, and this is imperative that we understand who he is from the Bible that the thoughts that we have about him are true, factual thoughts that come from God's divine revelation about who he is. And let me tell you something. This is what sets every born-again Christian apart from every non-born-again person in the world. This is what distinguishes believers and unbelievers. It is their Christology, their understanding of who Christ is. Jesus said in John 8, 24... Open your Bible and turn there. He said in John 8 24 an astounding statement. And here's what I'm saying. This is what separates every born again Christian from every non believer in the world. John eight twenty four. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You see the difference between believers and unbelievers? Well, what is it? It's belief. Belief in what? Belief in Christ, His person and His work. And the essential nature of that to our lives and to into the existence of the world. <laughs> Amen? Which is what I'm saying to you. This is the reason why everything exists. It's Christ, okay? And it's important as Christians that we understand that. If we don't understand that, listen, we're wandering in darkness. He is the light of the world. You know what the definition of light is? Look it up in the dictionary. That which causes the eye to see. Jesus comes into the world and he says, I am the light of the world. He who walks in me will not walk in darkness. Right? The, the, the point is that Jesus is the revelation of God. That's who the Bible expresses him to be and many other things. So as we're looking at and defining our Christology according to the Bible, these are the things we're learning. That he is the center focus of history. That he is the center focus of God's whole plan of redemption. That when God created the universe, he created it with a plan and a purpose. And that that purpose that he's working out is a purpose in Christ. And it's a purpose that happens by Christ. And it's a purpose that happens for Christ. Okay? Furthermore, that Jesus is the center focus of the whole Bible. So that as you're reading through the whole Bible, it doesn't matter if you're in Ezekiel chapter 37 or if you are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Jesus Christ is the center focus of those narratives. Okay? I was talking to you last week about the fact that Jesus in John, in the book of John, in the very first chapter there, is portrayed as the Word. Remember? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right? And I was saying to you that what is this idea of Jesus being named in the Bible the Word? right? And I was saying, the, w- words are used to do what? To communicate, so that, so that we can communicate. And I was saying to you that Jesus is the communication of God to us. He's the revelation of God. He's that which causes the eye to see what? To see God, to see God's person. Jesus is God revealed in the flesh. And that's going to be the topic of our study today. But think about that. The Bible portrays Jesus as the Word. Okay? It even says there, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? They're talking about the divine and the human natures of Christ in one verse of Scripture. Right? Well, today we're going to talk about the incarnation, the virgin birth, and the pre-existence of Christ, okay? And so uh, what we're describing here is more biblical revelation about who Christ is, okay? More biblical revelation about who Christ is. If you have your handouts there... Uh, starting on page 11. Now, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus was the God-man. And we began to talk about the idea that he has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And that he's the only person who ever lived in all of human history that has this, these two natures. And we talked about the fact that the church struggled for many, many years to try to define that. And, and uh, there on, on page 10, I, I gave you the, the, uh, the Chalcedonian definition of Christ. And there is a lengthy confession, if you will, of, of uh, the two natures of Christ. There is a, de- a description there given, which is formed from Scripture, helping us to understand these two natures of Christ, and to kind of pin down what that means. And I was telling you of the importance of understanding these things, because you may be reading a certain biblical narrative, and it may be stressing one nature or the other nature of Christ, and it may cause you to be confused. At times you may be reading, and you may read of Jesus, and there the humanity of Christ is being stressed, and you would say, well, that doesn't sound very much like God. I, I pointed you to the text in Matthew 24 where Jesus said, no one knows the day or hour of my return, not even the sun, right? And so, well, we ask the question, if Jesus is divine, how come he doesn't know that? What must he mean by that statement, right? Yet in other places, there he is hanging out with people, and the scripture says he knows their very thoughts, right? And And so what is he? Is he omniscient or isn't he? Well, in his divine nature, yes, he's completely omniscient. In his human nature, no. He's just another man, just like you and I. But in Jesus Christ, they're both one. Okay? This is what makes him such a unique person. He's a, he's, he's a God-man. He's fully God and he's fully man. And, and if you will, this is a thing that is of, spoken of throughout the Bible. It's not just in one little place. It's not just one little definition. It's not just in one passage. It's not just one writer. John seems to be the most prevalent one commenting about these things. I think that's because the Gospel of John is one of the last books that's written in the Bible. And by this time, John is a very mature apostle. Um, and and uh, uh, he makes many, many references to the deity of Christ in his writings. But he's not the only writer. This this is in all of the biblical writers are pointing to this thing, and so it's important for us to understand um, that Jesus is this God-Man. When we think about Jesus, when we think about our Christology, we need to understand he's not just some Galilean peasant wandering the shores of of uh, <clears throat> of Galilee. He's not just some Podunk guy from a little town in Jerusalem that lived 2,000 years ago, okay? He is that. He is those things. Yes, okay. But let me tell you, <laughs> he's God very God come into time and space in the person of that Galilean peasant, if you will. Yes, sir. I heard a Bible teacher the, anthropus. <laughs> the anthropus, the God man, right? That would be the Greek. <laughs> of course, there's no, there's no term in the scripture in the Greek that says God-man. It's just something that we use in studying Christ to describe him because he has two natures, okay? <clears throat> this is a very important thing for us to understand as Christians. And so this is why we're spending so much time talking about these things. These things are fundamental. And, and uh, as, as ministers of the gospel, these are things we need to understand. Because people are going to bombard us with questions about Christ. And by the way, he's the central issue. Right? Amen? In evangelism, when you're trying to share your faith with people, he, Christ, his person, is the central issue. Amen? And that person can't be saved without an acknowledgement of who Christ is and what he has done. Amen? That's what he said in John eight twenty four. Unless you believe what? That I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Many of you are familiar with the biblical statement, I am, and what it refers to, especially in the context of the Gospel of John. Amen? So these things are, are really important. But let's let's talk about this incarnation. The incarnation. What does the Bible say? When considering the person of Jesus Christ from the Bible, one soon learns that Jesus is extraordinary. He's extraordinary. Amen? This is because he is the one unique person in all of history in whom God became incarnate. So when we talk about the fact that Jesus had two natures, here's what we're saying, that He, he in his humanity, also possessed the nature of God. How did that happen? It happened as God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. This is to say that God became incarnated as a man in the person of Jesus Christ by the agency of the virgin birth. And I pointed to a scripture in John chapter 1, right there, John chapter 1, verse 14 where this is spoken of in very clear terms. There. The Word. Now, remember who the Word is in John chapter 1. In that context, in the first three verses, right? I want to read it to you. The first three verses of John chapter 1 reads like this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? The Word, capital W. This communication of God. Who is the word in John chapter 1? Jesus. Right? Listen to what it says. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Now think about that statement. That's an amazing statement. Right? Most people on the street, you ask them who Jesus was. Well, he's a Galilean peasant who was born in 4 BC. Died on a cross. Right? Right? They don't normally answer, he was in the beginning with God, do they? Right? But you understand who the biblical Jesus is, right? He was in the beginning with God, and he was also a Galilean peasant. You with me? Maybe that term's offensive to somebody. I'm, I'm sorry if it is. I, I don't mean to do that. Uh, but verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now who's the Word? Amen? The Creator. The Creator. All things came into being through Him. You with me? This Word, who was God, who was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Now look at verse 14 with me. What does it say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Their family is one verse describing the incarnation. Okay? All right. So, when we consider the nature of Jesus from Scripture, who is Jesus to you? When you think about Christ, what do you think about? And this is what you should think about. God incarnate in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. Okay? That should be your understanding of Jesus. When you're telling people about Jesus, this is how you should be describing Jesus. God incarnate in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. Let me tell you, that'll spark quite a conversation. Won't it? Especially when you begin to get into all the controversy surrounding his life. There's a thousand angles to evangelize people just from an understanding of these things in Christology. You with me? Listen, Jesus is the only one that can die on the cross for sins. Amen? I mean, there are so many angles that you can discuss with people about this, but you need to understand this. This is Christ 101. Okay? He's Christ. God incarnate in the flesh as a man. He's fully God and fully man. He has two natures. If you want a lengthy understanding of that, go study the Chalcedonian definition. Go look at all the scripture references. Find out why we have made this confession describing who he is in such intricate, comprehensive detail. Okay? There's a lot to that. There's a lot to learn about that. But the bottom line is this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came out of His inhabitancy in eternity and He became a man in time and space and lived and walked among us. Okay? The Incarnation. So when we consider the nature of Jesus from Scripture, we find that he is fully man and fully God. The Bible teaches that he is God in the flesh. And again, another reference in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. What are you trying to say, John? He's trying to say this is what the false gospel looks like. The false gospel does not proclaim that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. In other words, he's saying the most important doctrine about Christology is this, the deity of Christ. And it's this deity, he says, that, that we know the spirit of God from the spirit of the Antichrist. Amen? That's what John is saying. He's saying if, a, if, if someone comes testifying to you and he's not telling you that Jesus is God in the flesh, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. That's how you know a false gospel. Okay? Okay? Alright, so this incarnation, and there are many places in the Bible where the incarnation is spoken of. I have not exhausted them here. I'm just introducing the fact that what it means is God is incarnate in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That's rather simple. Would you agree? Now, I understand the Bible says a lot of things about it. It's very comprehensive, but the idea is really a simple thing. God left eternity as God. And he came into time and space as Jesus Christ. That's what the incarnation means. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We're celebrating the incarnation. Right? You know, people talk about the birthday of Jesus. Well, that's neat, and that's pretty, and that's cute. Okay? But that's that's not what the celebration of Christmas is. The celebration of Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation. It's the most important event in human history. This Jesus, this lamb who dies on this cross, is coming into the world from eternity. That's what we're celebrating. Amen? And that is a great and a glorious thing, is it not? Well... This also is what distinguishes Jesus Christ from every other religious leader. Jesus is, in fact, God himself come into the world to be with us and manifest God to us in a way that we can understand clearly by taking on our very nature. Jesus wants to. God wants to communicate to us who he is. So what does he do? He becomes one of us. He becomes the living word. He becomes a man and then we see God's character expressed in the life of the man, Jesus Christ. We learn of the love of God and the patience of God and the kindness of God and the justice of God and the wisdom of God and the wrath of God and the displeasure of God with sin. We learn about all those things in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so many more things we learn. But when we see Jesus, listen, we see all those attributes of God manifested to us in a way that we can understand. He came and walked among us. He lived among us. He, he dealt with the same kinds of things we deal with on a daily basis. And he faced every one of those situations with divine wisdom and supernatural power. Amen? And, and just about the time that you think that your suffering has reached its limit, let me tell you, you're not hanging on that cross at the moment of death. For, for a crime you did not commit. <laughs> Amen? With your heart weeping and crying for those who have hung you there. You see, that love there, that's a divine love. That's an amazing love. How can it be? Amen? Amen. That you, my Lord, should die for me. Because ultimately, I hung him there. Amen? Well, so the very name Emmanuel is a title for Jesus, meaning God with us, right? God took on a human nature in Jesus Christ. This is what the incarnation is. And if you have a biblical view of Jesus Christ, you understand the incarnation is central to what he is like, what his nature is. His nature is, he's God incarnate in the flesh. And this is what Matthew: 123 says. It says, "Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us." God with us. OK, let's look at that. Matthew 123. there it is on your handout, page 11. right? There it is. I want to ask you the question: Is Jesus God? What does Matthew one twenty three say? God God with us. Right? Okay. (laughs) Thus the incarnation. Thus the incarnation. So, then, let's talk about the virgin birth. The virgin birth. The Bible clearly speaks of the fact that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, and that he did not have a human father. Okay, listen, Jesus did not have a human father in the sense of conception, in the sense of bloodline. Okay, he did not have a human father. How do we know that? We know that because of the biblical record in Matthew 1, 18 through 20. Now, Now, hear me out. In your understanding of Christology as a Christian, here's something you must understand. Jesus did not have a human father. His father is God. This is how Jesus has a divine nature. This is how he has the nature of God incarnate in flesh. How? His father is God. Okay? So, start thinking about that. You start considering the importance then of the virgin birth. Why is that so important? You know, listen, it's not just a cute little Christmas story. It's not. Let me tell you, it's something that is is under violent attack. Okay? Listen, you take away the virgin birth, and the gospel of Jesus Christ falls to pieces. Okay? It's a pillar. It's a pillar in the understanding of the Christian gospel. Okay? So, this text in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, says this. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Here the Bible tells us crystal clear that Joseph had not had sexual relations with Mary, right? But instead that she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse eighteen. And then again in verse 20, it makes it more clear by saying that what has been, uh, that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, okay? Furthermore, we understand this very clearly from the idea that, okay, so here is Joseph, he's betrothed to Mary, that means they haven't been married yet, right? They're simply engaged, and all of a sudden, she's pregnant. We got a problem, Houston. <laughs> Amen? And the Bible's saying they haven't had sexual relations, yet she is pregnant. Right? So that we don't misunderstand this whole thing, we have verse 19. What does it say? And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her. Why? What's the problem? He's got a problem on his hands, doesn't he? If he deals with her rightly, listen, she's pregnant. And it wasn't by him. We got a problem. Amen? So he doesn't want to disgrace her. He, 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 doesn't, uh, uh, he wants to put her away secretly, the scripture says. You see, those words are very important in there. Because it's telling us the nature of what's happening in the relationship. Okay? And it's this a very important thing to understand. Um, but, but then, as he's considering this, imagine the man's struggle. Imagine his struggle. Okay? It, not only is he not wanting to disgrace her, the man is heartbroken. Amen? He's heartbroken. I mean, this is my beloved Mary. I mean, you know, Mary was a very godly woman. Very humble, gracious, godly woman. Okay? And, and here Joseph has this pure love for her, and they want to get married, and they have all these plans, and and then she's pregnant. Imagine the man's struggle. Right? And so God comes and helps him. God shows up, right? An angel from the Lord appears to him and tells him this. Right? Listen, Joseph, that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now that's a that's a that's a hard thing to figure. What are you talking about, God? This has never happened in the history of mankind. That a woman would be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What is that? Right? That's some divine mystery that Isaiah talked about 700 years before that. And all the law and the prophets have been testifying about it for years and years and years. Yet it is a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages past. Right? Until the fullness of time has come. And guess what? Joseph and Mary are directly affected by that whole plan. So God shows up and he tells him, Joseph... That which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, family, those are extremely important words in the Bible. You understand? When you think about your biblical view of Jesus, who is Jesus? Listen, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody rob that from you. And I want to tell you, there's a den of devils out there trying to do it, working overtime to do it. And, you know, if, if you're coming here every Sunday and Wednesday or wherever and the preaching you're hearing here, you're, you're likely not hearing those things, okay? But if you're out in the public media and you're reading books and you're watching TV and all those kinds of things, it's likely that you're going to be affected by an attack on this virgin birth, okay? I was looking through Wikipedia. You know what that is? It's, a, it's an online dictionary. Which, in many cases, is very helpful, but when you look there at the Virgin Birth, one of the first things you notice is there's this big window that pops up on the first page. You know what it says? The uh, the the, uh, the 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 neutrality of this argument of this article is in dispute. That's what it says. In other words, people have been complaining, people on both sides, that. The discussions of the virgin birth there are in dispute. And it's got this big thing. You click on this thing, it takes you to this whole big discussion room where they're they're vehemently arguing this debate over whether or not Jesus is born of God. Okay? I'm telling you, there is a vicious attack on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and you need to be aware of that as a Christian. And you need to know this thing, Matthew 1.20, Okay? That which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you furthermore, this is a fundamental issue of your faith. This is a pillar that upholds the Christian gospel. You cannot allow this thing to be attacked. and You certainly cannot allow anything but the Bible to define your understanding of this. Okay, this is a divine mystery. This isn't something that medical doctors go figure out. This isn't something that science duplicates. You understand what I'm saying? You understand what science is, right? In true science, this is what they do. They duplicate things and they test them. And then they come to an understanding of reality. And typically in science, if you can't duplicate it, 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 it's still open to theory. You with me? Well, let me tell you, you ain't going to duplicate the incarnation. It happened one time in history. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? This is a divine mystery. This is something you accept by faith on the biblical record. You with me? So it's important for us to understand these things. Well, this divine miracle is remarkable indeed. It clearly speaks of the nature of the baby to be born, that it will be divine. This child will be holy, and without the iniquity of an earthly father being passed to him, he will be the very son of God. Okay, And Luke chapter 1 says this. Listen to what it says about this baby Jesus. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. You hear what the Bible says Jesus is? He's a holy offspring. Let me tell you, in the history of mankind, there has never been a holy offspring except for one. Why is that? Because everybody else has a human father, and that human father passes to that person what? Sin. Sin, Iniquity. Okay? This is why it is extremely important to understand Jesus did not have a human father. His father was God, and that's how he became the God-man. Okay? Okay? What a mystery. What a divine, glorious, beautiful thing that God has done in Christ. Amen? Okay. So we see that Jesus not only had a human mother, Mary, but his father is God himself. This is a thing of wonder indeed. The humanity and the deity of Christ are clearly seen in the fact that Jesus is the son of man being born of Mary and the son of God being conceived of the Holy Spirit. Thus God took on a human nature and became a man. And Galatians 4 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You see, God sent forth his son. From where, I might ask? You with me? God sent forth his son. What does that imply? That he existed before. His coming into time and space. Amen? Think about what the scripture is implying in the things that it says. It's amazing. Well, this was absolutely necessary for Jesus to come into the world to die as a substitution for our sins. No one other man could ever do this for us because Jesus was the only one without sin and therefore able to die in our place. You understand? Because Jesus had a divine nature and because he was born of a virgin, he was the only one who could die as a substitution in our place for sins. Why? Because he wasn't dying for his own sins. Every other person who has ever lived will die because of their own sins. But not Jesus. When Jesus dies for sins, he dies for all sins. He dies for sins, plural. He dies for sin in its totality. He dies to cover iniquity, period. Okay? That's because he was perfect. And his death has that infinite value of holiness. Okay? It's a profound thing to consider. This doctrine of the virgin birth is always and continually under attack for this very reason. Listen, when they attack the virgin birth, they attack, first of all, the deity of Christ. Because if they say or can somehow establish that Christ was not born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit, then they rob his divine nature from him. You understand? An attack on the virgin birth is first and foremost an attack on the deity of Christ. That's the most fundamental doctrine to your faith. Who is Christ? Okay? An attack on the virgin birth is an attack on deity. And let me tell you, an attack on the virgin birth is an attack on substitutionary atonement. Because what we're saying is, is that Jesus is not this divine, unblemished Lamb of God dying on this cross for the sins of the world, like the Bible says. Understand? So that's why this virgin birth is under attack. It's a pillar to to the understanding of the Christian gospel. And it's important for us to have a view of it. Okay, why is, was the virgin birth important? Let me give you three reasons. These come out of Grudem's theology. Just real quick, the virgin birth makes possible the idea that salvation is from God. It's not according to any human work. But that God entered time and space in the virgin birth to provide a lamb for himself, an unblemished lamb. Who could only come in divine nature to be unblemished? Okay? Salvation is from the Lord. Right? Yes, ma'am? important that he did not have an earthly father because he did not inherit nature? Why did Mary not contribute to Good question. Uh, to my knowledge, the Bible doesn't comment on it, but it is a topic of controversy. In uh, theological circles so um, I can't answer that for you Um, but I'll tell you what um, what I can answer is that the Bible makes it crystal clear that it's through Adam that iniquity comes into the human race and what's interesting is the Bible doesn't blame Eve Okay? Now there is places in the Bible where it speaks of Eve, as a matter of fact, in First Timothy, it says she was the first sinner, if you will, First Timothy chapter two. But the point is when, when, uh, when Paul, in the New Testament doctrinal passage that talks about iniquity being passed into the human race through one man sin entered the human race, it always talks about Adam. And he, Adam is considered, if you will, the federal head. And this idea that we are in Adam, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in Adam all die, right? In Christ all shall be made alive. And and the point is, is that in the discussion of human nature and human sin nature in the Bible, the man is always the responsible party. So, when Paul says that Eve was the first one tempted, that is not a passage discussing the nature of man 's sinful nature that 's a passage discussing proper behavior of women and women 's submission to authority that 's a different kind of a passage in the in the in the past instructional passages in the New Testament talking about man 's sinful nature, man is always the responsible party, so that 's kind of some background on that argument so uh, if that 's a struggle for you, I would say. Let's go study it. Um, and so did everybody understand the question? Why didn't Christ receive sin from Mary? Okay. And, and quite frankly, I think it simply has to do with the biological understanding of what a man's seed is. And, and in the scripture, uh, it, it's called a seed. And if you will, I mean, just taking the analogy of plants, right? Without that seed, you don't have the plant. And and it's it, it, somehow, if you will, that is the original anatomy of of a being, it comes from the seed. So there's probably a lot that could be said about that, Terry. Yeah, I, I I did read that. Let's see now. Um, Grudem actually just says that same thing. He discusses that same thing. He says that there's no reason to think that iniquity couldn't be passed from Mary to Jesus or from a mother to a child. Uh, no biblical reason. And so what he says is he points to a divine work in in keeping Jesus sanctified somehow um, through that, which is what you're saying, right? That that because of it, this is a divine work that God is doing. That somehow He's working supernaturally to um, to provide um, a holy sanctifying in the in the birth of Jesus, keeping Him safe from iniquity being passed to Him from Mary. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, so the the point is is that I, I tend to think not. I, I don't agree with that line of reasoning, my own opinion, okay? And here, here's what I'm telling you, okay? I, first, I said I couldn't answer the question. Second, I said the Bible says very little about it. Third, I'm giving you my own opinion, if it, if it helps. It's probably about that and two cents will get you a cup of coffee about 50 years ago. But mm, uh, I tend to think that it has to do with the nature of man being passed through the seed, and that somehow iniquity is not passed on the female side. Well I also just kinda of see it as as being just carrying as a mode of transportation or from from Mary. Mm-hmm. Mary. Yes. Oh. She's a the surrogate mother. Right? Oh let me tell you. That's how I see it. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Let me just warn you. <laughs> this is a major controversy in theology because you understand in, in Roman Catholicism you have Mariology. And Mariology goes way beyond, in some places, it goes way beyond uh, biblical texts into all kinds of mysticism. And, and namely, the, the, the probably the most fundamental issue there is, is that the, Ro- the official Roman Catholic position on Mary is that she's sinless. Okay? And that's why she doesn't pass on a sinful nature to Jesus. Well, let me tell you. That, that that is a violation of the nature of man in Scripture. Mary is not sinless. Mary is a sinner. And that's also clear in the biblical text. Um, so, yeah, one more here. One more comment, we're going to move on. One other thing. Genetically speaking, it's the chromosomes within the man that determines the sex of the child. So, in other words, if God had made Eve first, it would have been genetically impossible to make Adam from Eve's side. So, Interesting. Yeah, speaking genetically, it's the male that determines. He's got the chromosomes of both the male and the female. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So the male determines in, the, uh, uh, in, in having a child, it's his chromosomes that determine the sex of the child. Right. And I tend to think along those lines, if you will, but, you know, again, Uh, um, that's an important thing, I'm sure, in the argument. But uh, again, the Bible doesn't say a lot about this. So, Okay, but we're going to move on. So I was giving you three reasons uh, why the virgin birth was important. The first one is salvation is from the Lord. It comes from God. God has provided a lamb for the sacrifice. Okay, an unblemished lamb who has a holy nature. Furthermore, number two, the, uh, um, the, the virgin birth makes possible the unity of the divine nature and the human nature. Amen? It's, it's the vehicle by which a man can become God, because a man is conceived and born, right? So the virgin birth becomes the very vehicle of the hypostatic union, remember? The the union of Christ's two natures, his divine and his human nature. So the virgin birth is important because it's the vehicle of the God-man. You with me? It's the vehicle of a man taking on a divine nature. And thirdly, it is the vehicle of which Jesus did not inherit sin. Okay? And this is why these things are of, of such, you know, hot controversy. I mean, if you can establish somehow that Jesus took on a sin nature, okay, the Christian gospel has huge problems, okay? So that's why these things are so hotly debated. Um, So, okay, so here's what I want to do in the remaining minutes. I want to expose you to this doctrine of the preexistence of Christ. And next week, then, we'll be talking about the preexistence of Christ and the deity of Christ, okay? So, I made this chart for you. So, if you have that chart, pull that out and let's look at that just for a minute. Now, think about something. When you think about the incarnation, right? What's the incarnation? The fact that God became a man and walked among us. That God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the incarnation, right? God became incarnated in a man. Now, think about what that implies. That implies that God was outside of time and came into time. I mean, we know God is outside of time. He's eternal, right? But what I'm saying is the incarnation implies a pre-existence. You understand what I'm saying? When Jesus became the God-man, He wasn't just you know, God being created out of nothing, right? He was, in fact... The eternal Son of God entering into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. That implies what? That he was the eternal Son of God. That he always existed as God. Outside of time. You understand? God sent forth his Son. He came into the world. From where? From heaven. He existed before in time. He existed before his time on earth as a man. You understand? That's implied very clearly in the incarnation. This is what I'm saying. He came from somewhere. <laughs> and thus he, he pre-existed his existence in time and space. You understand? Now again, this is a very important doctrine. Why? Because it establishes the deity of Christ. And the Bible says volumes about this. If you look on page 12. I've listed a few scripture references there, every one of which clearly teach the pre-existence of Christ. Okay? So this isn't something that's just some vague reference in scripture. This is a very clear teaching in scripture. Well, um, the idea then, if you look at the chart was, That Jesus Christ is God the Son and has existed forever in heavenly glory. You know who God is, right? He's the one who was and is and is to come. He was... When? When was He? Always. Always. Forever. In eternity. God has always existed. Right? That's part of the nature of God. He's eternal right? So if Jesus is God, namely the second person of the Trinity, then he is also possesses the divine attribute of eternality correct? which means he always was. So the fact that he always was means that he pre-existed his coming into time and space as a man okay? So if that were true, you would want to find that clear in the biblical narrative. And when you as a Christian think about your Christology, who is Jesus, here's who he is. He's the second person of the Trinity who always existed in eternity past. He's the very creator of the heavens and the earth, which implies what? That he is what? He is before all things. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. He's before all things. Right? Did you know that? That's what Colossians chapter 1 says. And uh, we'll end right there. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And look at just you know one description of who Christ is. But think about how clearly then... This doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ is portrayed in Scripture, okay? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Speaking about Jesus, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In a word firstborn there is the idea of preeminence, or the one who gets the inheritance in the house, right? Verse 16, For by him all things were created. Listen, by Jesus all things were created. In the Bible, the biblical Jesus, he's the creator of everything. Okay? That's what the scripture says. By him all things were created. Now, let's just get straight what you mean, Paul. What are all things? Here he describes it. Both in the heavens and on earth. What's he mean? Angels and men, stars, planets, clouds, mountains and hills and valleys and trees, right? That's what he means, both in the heavens and on earth, (coughs) visible and invisible, right? Now what's he talking about? Invisible creation, what is that? Angels, right? He goes on, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, listen, All things have been created through him and for him. Think about that statement. That's massive. Jesus, it says, by him all things were created, and he repeats it a second time. All things have been created through him and for him. It was all made for him and for his own purposes. Right? And then verse 17, look what it says. He is before all things. Family, look at this. Your understanding of the biblical Jesus must include this. He is. You know, God shows up to Moses in the burning bush and says, hey, go down there and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, who should I say sent me? Right? You know what God answers? Tell them I am has sent you. And God revealed himself to Moses as who? I am. He is. Understand? He's God, very God. He is the ultimate reality. That's what he's saying. When God says, I am, he's saying, I am reality. I am the beginning and the end. You with me? He is, listen, before all things which is not just a statement about time. It's not just a statement about He preexisted at all, although that's what it's very clearly saying. Okay? It's also a statement about preeminence. He is the preeminent one. Why? Because all things were created through Him and for Him and by Him. Amen? That's who the biblical Jesus is. Amen? And this is fundamental to our faith. Would you agree? Okay, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we do bless you and praise you and exalt you and recognize you to be the sovereign Lord. We thank you and we bless you for this knowledge. Oh Lord, I pray that it would challenge us each day as we go throughout our week, Lord. As we consider our relationship to you, Lord, that you are indeed on your throne in heaven. And that, Lord, you are the one who has created everything. Lord, that you are the word which has spoken all things into existence. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would have an exalted and a very high view of who you are. And I pray, Lord, that we would respond to you accordingly. Lord, that we would see you as the creator. And that we would act properly as creatures under your lordship. We thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing in our lives. We thank you for this glorious revelation of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.